Hey, hey, good morning. Good morning, Brookview. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it was uh, funny. I think some of us were walking in here this morning, kind of peeking around to see if the chairs were back in a row. So um, myself included, even though that I put them out there this morning. So, um, well, I got some announcements for you guys. Something really cool that's coming up. Um, really soon is this parenting class, and it's actually starting next week. Um, and really cool about it, it's full. Um, but if you're still interested, you can go to brookviewchurch.com and click on parenting and sign up um, to be on the wait list. So if a spot does open up, we're able to, to let you know and fill it in. But it's super exciting that it's happening and it's full and it's going to be good. Also, we still need some help. And so we need some help with food for adults, food for kids, and then also child care. And that's starting next week on February, February 26th, and it goes through April 2nd. So if you're able to help not every single week or just one, one of the Sundays, um, we would love to hear from you. And you can reach out to Jen, or you can um, reach out to the Brookview email or fill out your online communication card. But it's super exciting that we have a parenting class, so let's go. Um, and then the next thing that we have is this upcoming Tuesday, we partner with Vision House and um, Cedar Way to help uh, families get food and supplies um, because people and families are struggling financially. And so um, as a monthly rhythm, we um, donate some food and supplies. And so that's happening this Tuesday. And it's just really cool. I've been going to Cedar Way the last couple of times. And it's just really, like, cool to see the gratefulness of some of these families. And it's, it's cool to be a part of, and I'm so happy that our, our church partners with them. And so if you're interested in helping um, in any way, you can text HELPING to the Brookview number, or you can fill out your online communication card. The last thing I have is your online communication card. We love you guys. We love hearing from you. And we also have a prayer team. So if you just wanted to fill that out, um, for a prayer request, we're here for you too. That's all I have. Good morning. Good morning. So good to see you guys. I wasn't sure what we would get because it's like a, a midwinter break for all the schools and so everybody like went to Europe. <laughs> but, uh, but you guys are here and the people that really love Jesus, man, they're here. So, all right, I want you to imagine with me, imagine that it's, um, it's a Sunday morning, not too hard so far, and you, you get up early-ish to go out for coffee. So it's like 8 a.m. or whatever, and just to make this a, a nicer dream, let's say it's a beautiful, warm summer day. I could use a warm summer day. And so you're in line at your coffee shop of choice, and you get up to the counter to order your drink, and the barista asks you the inevitable question, what are you doing today? 
How, how many of you immediately feel a tension in your chest? Because if you say, you know, I'm, I'm going out for mimosa with my girlfriends, or I, I'm, I'm going to the beach, or, or I'm going to go do yoga down by the river, or pretty much anything, like it's all great. But if you say, well, it's Sunday, so I'm going to church because on Sundays, I gather with followers of Jesus at this little church in Briar. And we come together and we declare that the kingdom of God is here and one day coming in full, that Jesus is Lord over the entire world. Can I get some soy milk, by the way, please? Right? If you say that, if you, if you sort of let that, like, what happens? What happens immediately? I mean, nine times out of ten, I've, there's like this awkward tension in the air. And so if you're anything like me, you project into the barista's consciousness what he or she is thinking. They might not be saying anything, but you're projecting, right? You're like, here's what they're thinking. like, oh, you're one of those people. My daughter's here. I thought, speaking of people in Europe, I thought you were in, where, where were you, California? I, this is my gen impression right here, you guys, of total distraction. My goodness, I'm the second happiest person in the room besides Keller. <laughs> or maybe Jesus, because here you are, but, oh my goodness. Okay, so you project onto the barista what they're thinking, like, oh no, like, you're going to church, you're, you're one of those people, you're crazy, you're weird, you're probably an uneducated bigot. I mean, who knows what's wrong with you? And so you just have this sense of instant tension. You guys, this is a, a, a recent development, at least in the U.S. And like, this was not the case 50 years ago. I mean, no one had a barista 50 years ago, but it was not the case for that kind of social tension, or even 25 years ago. But over the last two or 300 years, and particularly over the last two to three decades, there has been a tectonic shift in Western culture. The ground underneath our feet has moved, right? There was a time when most of America held a Judeo-Christian worldview, a time when most people on the street believed in God and in Jesus and at least little bits and pieces of the Bible and for the most part held Christian morality to a high standard and, and, and looked up to it, right? The word historians use for this period in Western culture is Christendom. And it officially started in 331 AD when Emperor Constantine made violence against followers of Jesus illegal in the Roman Empire. And, and he did that, most historians think, as a political move. Because for the first time, Christians, which started out as this dinky little minority, right? Like, I mean, 120 people in the upper room had by that time, in just 300 years, you guys become 53% of the entire Roman Empire. So Constantine's, and that's despite persecution and, and horrific things happening. So Constantine's a politician, and he knows that, that that's not a minority anymore. So at first, he ends the 300 years of brutal persecutions against Christians, and then eventually he goes on to profess to be a follower of Jesus himself. Now, whether his conversion was authentic or just like a, a political move is up to Jesus. 
right? I don't know. I, I kind of doubt it, but I don't know, and it's been highly debated. But he made Christianity the default religion of the Roman Empire. Now, a lot of thinkers, myself included, think that that was actually one of the worst things to ever happen to Christianity. It was one of the worst things to ever happen to the church because the Romans took all of their ways, right? Power, hierarchy, wealth, religion, and they imposed, they imposed this on this powerful new thing that they discovered called the church. And that version of things, okay, a little bit of Christianity with all of that Roman stuff became known as Christendom, right? The civil religion of the masses. It was church and state all mixed up together. And that became the de facto setting for the church, you guys, for well over a thousand years. Like even after Europe and countries like the U.S. and Canada, where we, we have no state religion, like there's no like Anglican communion like they had in England, right? In America, there's no state church. But even here, Christianity has been the civil religion. As most of you know, this slowly began to change uh, in Western culture, Europe and U.S., North America, in the 17th and 18th centuries. Something happened called the Age of Enlightenment, which started to question key assumptions of Christendom. But the Enlightenment stayed, and this is interesting, it stayed mostly in the scholarly realms until just the last few decades. And so now, even though the way of Jesus is exploding around the world, and it is, it is exploding around the world, particularly throughout South America and all throughout Asia. I mean, it is just exploding. But in Europe and even more in the US and Canada, Christianity is in rapid decline. And many of us feel it, right? We look around at this world that we're living in and we go, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore, right? And some of you are like, what are you talking about? You just, it's a classic. <laughs> what does this feel like? It feels like, what does it feel like? It feels like there, there are, you know, what are the differences that many of us are, are, are feeling? I, I, let me just point out three differences, and there are many, just three. We have shifted from the majority to the minority. So our worldview, values, practices, morals, and social norms are more and more at odds with the culture that we live in. And so we face enormous pressure to assimilate to the herd. We are finding ourselves more and more on the fringe of society. The church was once at the center, and now we're on the fringe. And as Christianity becomes increasingly obsolete in our culture, the fastest growing segment of our society on surveys, okay, so when people are filling out surveys, is a group called the nuns. Um, so N-O-N-E, none meaning spiritual, but not religious. So not Christian or Buddhist or Muslim or Hindu or any of that, but also not atheist. So here's what I am. I'm spiritual, but not religious. And this is especially true in the Northwest, right? In Seattle, all the way down to Portland, where maybe three to 4% of people go to a church of any kind with regularity. So imagine this, you're at an office party you're at an office party, and if there's 100 people there, the statistical odds are that two, maybe three, maybe four others at that party with you are followers of Jesus. 
We have become a minority in our culture and a very small one very fast. Okay, then a second shift. We've moved from a place of honor to a place of shame. Right, there was a day in which the church or believers held a place of honor in society. Christians were once thought of as intelligent, kind, and good for society. These days, those words are rarely associated with Christianity. And that leads to a third shift that many of us feel, which is from widespread tolerance to a rising hostility. More and more, people think of us not just as different. I mean, uh, for a long time, people have thought of Christians as a little different. You know, it's like, well, wait, what? You, you don't sleep together before marriage? Like, how do you know if you're compatible? Like, that's weird. But that's okay, I guess. So we used to be thought of like as weird but harmless. More and more, people are thinking of us as dangerous, as standing in opposition to what's good for humanity, right? In our culture, Christians are now increasingly being viewed by many as the problem in our society. Things have changed so much, so fast. Um, Lee Beach writes this. He says, in the post Christian revolution, it is fair to say that the church is one of those former power brokers who once enjoyed a place of influence at the cultural table, but has been chased away from its place of privilege and is now seeking to find where it belongs amid the ever-changing dynamics of contemporary culture. Sometimes sociologists divide Western history into three basic phases or stages. The first is what might be called pre-Christian culture. So this is like Celtic Ireland before Christianity came to it, right? This is the Norse tribes and the Vikings, right, before the gospel. It, it was a culture of gods and goddesses. It was, it's tribal, it's violent, and it is charged with spiritual energy. But as Christianity began to spread further west all through Europe, the west moved into a second phase that we would call Christianized culture. Now, please know, it was never fully Christian, never, ever, not in Europe, not in America, nowhere. This would be what we would call Christendom. It's, it was a hybrid. Christian ideas that were mixed together in a big salad bowl and tossed around with a whole bunch of other stuff. But for the most part, Christian ideas were embraced and reinforced. Christians were the majority, and they were held in high regard. Christian views were generally accepted by most people. Okay, but over the last few decades, we've quickly shifted into what we would now call a post-Christian culture. But here's the thing. A post-Christian culture is not a return to pre-Christian culture. Like, okay, nobody I know is, is, has gone back to like worshiping Odin and Thor, <laughs> right? Nobody is sacrificing their firstborn child to the spirits of Briar Park, Post-Christian culture is not a return to pre-Christian culture. What it is, is it's a reaction against Christian culture. It is, at least it's a reaction against Christendom. It's, it's, it's like our culture is now having the, like its rebellious teenager moment. It's like it's the adolescent who's texting how lame their parents are while living in their home and eating all their food. <laughs> this is kind of what's happening with Western culture. Our culture is, is now enjoying many of the benefits that are left over from Christianity, while at the same time complaining about it and rebelling against it. 
And do you think this is particularly true when it comes to something like human rights? You guys, think about how committed our culture is to human rights. I mean, we, we protect the rights of the weak or the powerless or the unusual. We, we want to empower and value every single kind of person. And you know what? That's beautiful. But where did we get those values? Yuval Harari is one of the leading atheists of our generation, and he calls human rights a Christian myth. He attributes human rights to what he calls, because he's an atheist, the myth of Christianity. Why? Because you simply can't logically get from Darwinian materialism, like survival of the fittest, to we should all inconvenience ourselves to care for the weak or the struggling or to protect the unusual. Human rights stems from a belief in the inherent value of every person. It stems from the idea that every single person bears the image of God. Human rights broke into our world, you guys, primarily through Christianity. Yet our culture is having this rebellious teenager moment against Christianity. Like it still eats from the table and and enjoys having its own room, but it doesn't want any say-so from mom and dad. See, post Christianity yearns for the justice and the love and the beauty of the kingdom of God, but it rejects God and Jesus as the way in which that kingdom comes to us. Essentially, post-Christianity is an attempt to experience the kingdom without the king. And this new cultural moment feels really foreign to many of us. We're not in Kansas anymore. All of this leads me to where we are with this new series. You watch this intro and go, what the heck is that? Um, There is a metaphor that cuts all the way through the Bible that captures the cultural moment that we now call home, and and it's the metaphor of exile. Again, Lee Beach, author Lee Beach, describes exile in this way. Says the experience, here's what exile is. It's the experience of knowing that one is an alien and perhaps even in a hostile environment where the dominant values run counter to one's own. The sense of exile is is experienced by anyone who feels alienated, cast adrift, or marginalized by their inability or unwillingness to conform to the tyranny of majority opinion. And increasingly, this is what following Jesus feels like in our culture. I like the simple way Eugene Peterson defines exile. He says, the essential meaning of exile is that that we are where we don't want to be. We are separated from home. So not only are we, as apprentices of Jesus, experiencing a cultural exile, but if exile is simply being where we don't want to be, or even more simply being separated from home, Some of you, many of you, are feeling a a kind of personal exile as well. Like something has gone sideways in your life, and you are not where you want to be. You feel far from home. It could could be a marriage that fell apart, and your life was turned upside down. It could be that your health has failed, and life is not what you want it to be. Could be that life has moved you to a geographic area that's not home and nothing feels familiar. It all feels strange. It feels foreign. It could be that your parents have divorced and there's not even a home to go to anymore. 
Maybe you're single and you, don't, you really don't want to be. It's not how you want life to be. Uh, maybe more than anything, you, you, you want a child to build a family, but it just isn't happening and you feel separated from home. Right now, some of you are, are feeling and facing a level of exile that you could have never imagined. Like there's a disorientation and disequilibrium in your body and in, and in your soul, and it stems from the loss of safety or security or familiarity. It's the loss of what we'd simply call home. Okay, this is exile. And exile has been a common experience for God's people. So in this series, what I want us to do is to take a look at how those who have gone before us have navigated this. Um, and so we're going to spend a lot of this series, we're going to kind of camp in this series in the book of Daniel, which is a story that, that for the most part follows four courageous and creative people who find their lives turned completely upside down. People who are extracted from everything that feels like home and they are dropped into a strange place in a strange culture that is intolerant of and hostile to their faith. So, okay, here we go. We're going to jump right into the, the story of Daniel. This is, we're starting in chapter 1, verse 1, and I'm going, to read, I'm going to read you a bunch of verses. Here we go. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of, God, of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Aspenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Some of you single ladies, you're looking for a description to put on the <laughs> dating website? I mean, come on. And if you're a follower of Jesus, that is so biblical. So they round up these, these good-looking, smart guys to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, and here's the four guys, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So all four of these boys have a name that honors the God of Israel, and all four of them have their names changed to something that honors a God of Babylon. Now we'll dive into all this next week as we work through Daniel chapter, uh, chapter 1 this morning. It's just like an intro to the concept of exile. And for this morning, all I want you to do is, is take a moment and try to envision what they're going through. I mean, imagine that you are a Jewish teenager. You're smart and well-educated from a prosperous family. You're from the nobility. You're like fifth or sixth or eighth in line for the throne or whatever. And all of a sudden, for all sorts of reasons, you are ripped out of your upbringing. 
you're dragged away from your parents, from your family, from your home, from the temple, from God's dwelling place, place in Jerusalem, from everything that's familiar to you, even your own language, and you are dragged off to the foreign land of Babylon. It is a culture hostile to you and your faith, and its values are completely unlike your own. The people in Babylon worship their gods, the Babylonian gods, through sex and through child sacrifice. They sacrifice their own children. Injustice and oppression and sexual immorality are the norm. Extravagant wealth is all over the place, but so is extreme poverty. And those that have oppressed without mercy, those that do not have. Then you as a teenager are put into this three-year cultural immersion program, like this advanced social engineering project designed to erase your faith in God, designed to erase any and all traces of your Jewishness. You're literally renamed after Babylonian gods. Like, how in the world do you even survive that, much less stay true to the God you love? We are not the first struggling to stay faithful to God in a difficult host culture. In fact, in the New Testament, exile is used to describe the felt experience of all of the early Christians. Like this tiny, dinky little minority in the culturally hostile empire of Rome. Um, Peter opens his letter to first century followers of Jesus with this. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to to God's elect, get this, exiles scattered throughout the provinces. And then he names all the different places that they're scattered. Right? And then in chapter 1, verse 17, he writes, Since you call on a father who judges each each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Then in chapter 2, he continues with this exile metaphor. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So while many that Peter was writing to were living right where they'd always lived, their, their felt experience, the felt experience of the day, because they're now following Jesus amidst a culture that's hostile to their way, was one of exile. So for us, in a post-Christian world now, to be a disciple of Jesus is, in a sense, to be an exile. So the question is, how do, we, how do we live in this kind of cultural moment? Like, how do we make it through? Like the exiles in Babylon and the, and the first followers of Jesus, how do we navigate the felt experience of exile? And so today, I want to just launch this series with what I think is an unbelievable passage from the book of Jeremiah. And uh, we don't camp a lot in Jeremiah, but this is amazing. Because at the beginning of the exile of the Jews to Babylon, the prophet Jeremiah was back home in Jerusalem. He had been left behind with a small contingent of people. And he wrote a letter to the exiles in Babylon. And his letter became, over the centuries, a kind of template for how the people of God are to flourish in exile. And I think this is so fitting for their experience, but also for our own. So let me read this. This is Jeremiah chapter 29. 
And it says, this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. It said, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what you, here's what you need to do, guys. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. So note the tone of graciousness toward the city of Babylon that they are being told to have. Note the, 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 the attitude that they are supposed to have to their host culture where they now find themselves. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Look, if the city does well, guys, it'll be good for you. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Now this is referring, if you read Jeremiah, to a group of prophets who were saying, hey, you guys, we don't need to get used to this place. We're going back home any day now. And of course, people wanted to hear this. So they were getting a lot of these messages. God's going to rescue us and, and everything's going to go back to normal. So don't settle into this place. And whatever you do, don't make it home. These, these false prophets were peddling a kind of nostalgia for the past rather than helping these people face reality. So Jeremiah continues. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon... 70 years. You're going to be in this place for a long time, several generations, in fact. When 70 years are completed, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place, okay, back home to Jerusalem. And here comes one of the most quoted verses in the entire Old Testament, and here it is in context. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then, okay, after 70 years in Babylon, after 70 years, several generations, you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Okay, so not as a religious duty or a, a little spirituality in your life to make your life a little happier, but when you really seek me and you really long for me and you run after me, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. So this is not just for you in Babylon, but for exiles in times and places everywhere like us. And will bring you back home to the place from which I carried you into exile. You guys, this, this letter from Jeremiah gave the Jewish people a blueprint, a paradigm, for how to not just survive exile, but how to, how to thrive there. And, and we know that this letter actually did shape them. We know it shaped Daniel's approach to life in Babylon because Daniel writes about the influence of this letter in Daniel chapter 9. This is pretty cool. 
Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, it says, In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So notice, Daniel is writing just a few, he's writing his stuff a few decades after getting this letter that Jeremiah sent. And not only is Daniel aware of the letter, he, he thinks of it as scripture. Um, I understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to the prophet Jeremiah. You guys, this is like, this is like Peter referring to Paul's letters as scripture, which he does in the New Testament. It's awesome. It was, it was like given divine authority immediately. And for Daniel and his friends, Jeremiah's letter became this template. And not only did they read his letter and know it, but more than likely, it generated their entire approach to life in exile. Now, there's so much that we can take from Jeremiah's letter in, in how to posture ourselves to flourish and thrive in a culture, um, in a cultural or personal exile. But to, to sum it up like, to way, like way oversimplify it, I think it's basically saying there's two extremes to avoid. There's two extremes to avoid in our posture toward a, a cultural kind of exile. And the first is separatism. Right, this, this is where we just kind of disengage with the culture. We just form a, a kind of holy huddle and we hide away from the big bad world around us. And we wanna gather with people who think just like us and to hell with everybody else, literally. Right? We just moved to some random uh, obscure spot in eastern Washington and we just put Chris Tomlin on replay. <laughs> right? And we, and we grow our own organic food. <laughs> Which is not a bad thing. <laughs> and we eat gluten-free, probably, or wh wh whatever. Vegan. Okay. God bless all of you. Okay, now, uh, obviously, it doesn't need to get as extreme as that, like, um, but we've all seen Christian communities that do this. Like, you know, the Amish would be one, but there are many, many, many forms of this and varieties of this. We've also, but to be honest, when I think of us and I think of Brookview and I think of those that go to our church and live in this culture, most of us are not in, in, the, in, in danger of that particular extreme. Instead, there's a second extreme and what we would call syncretism. And this is where we just get sucked into the gravitational pull of the majority culture. And we just assimilate, we just adopt its values and ways, and it's not like an outright rejection of God, it's not atheism, but it is a, a bending of values slowly toward the culture. It's letting go more and more and more the way of Jesus in favor of whatever the values and priorities are of the dominant host culture. But, but Jeremiah paints a different picture. Uh, uh, he paints a picture of a different way to deal with exile. And what he does is he warns against both separatism and syncretism. And he gives them seven instructions for how to cope with life in exile. So I want to run through this like super quickly and just get a picture of sort of a third way that Jeremiah is proposing a vision for how to flourish in a cultural and personal exile. And the first thing, um, the first thing that God says through Jeremiah is, number one, build houses and settle down. 
plant gardens and eat what they produce. They would have been organic, so that would make some of you very happy. Uh, meaning, okay, meaning this may not be where you want to be, but it's where you are. Make it home. Fashion the best environment for living in it that you possibly can. Settle in for the long run. This is going to take a while. Most, and so embrace the parts of the culture that you can. Eat the food that you can. Because, like, they got killer curry in Babylon, baby. Enjoy it. Have you tried the hummus? Right? Okay, number two. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives and husbands for your children so that they too may have children. Saying, don't stop living life. Make a great profile on eHarmony.com. <laughs> Live in a thick web of relational life and multi-generational family. Forge thick ties to each other across generational lines. And that leads to number three. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Don't be afraid of life in this strange new place. Carry on. Keep living. Keep going. Keep moving forward. Number four, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Like Do all you can to make your city more like the kingdom of heaven, more in line with God's vision for human flourishing. Do that in any way you can. Be a good citizen. Pay your taxes. Support the local economy. Share with the poor. Stand up for justice. Volunteer. Like, go coach Little League or, or go help with Girl Scouts or whatever. Get involved. Number five, pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Above all, pray for God to bless your city. Ask God to pour his blessing out on it. Pray for your city to soften to God. Pray for your city and the people to respond to God. Pray for justice and goodness and charity in your city. Don't hate your city. Love it. Serve it. Number six, do not be deceived by false prophets. And this is the one like do not in all of Jeremiah's letter. Don't listen to the wrong voices. Right? Don't be deceived. Be cautious of those who want the kingdom without the king. Watch out for those who would lead you away from the way of Jesus, away from him and his vision for human flourishing. And pay close attention because sometimes wolves look like sheep. Not everything that claims to be Jesus and the way of Jesus is. And then, final instruction, number seven, seek God with all your heart. Even in Babylon, this is what he's insisting. Even in, They've left J Jerusalem. They've left the temple. They've left the place where there's the presence of God. And, and Jeremiah is insisting, even in Babylon, guys, God can be found. Jeremiah is saying, so seek him with everything you've got. Like, read scripture. Pray like crazy. Gather with others. Find other apprentices of Jesus and do life with them and learn from them and pour into them and make each other more mature. Organize your life around regular practices that connect you to God and do it day after day, month after month, year after year, and then you just watch what God does in your life because even in Babylon, God can be found, so seek him with all your heart. But notice in Jeremiah 29, there's no hostility. There's no, there's no fear. There's no anger. There's no aggression. There's no cursing the darkness. It's a kind of counterculture that engages the dominant culture. 
That's the prescription. And this was also, if you think about it, absolutely the way of the earliest apprentices of Jesus. The invitation of Jesus to us in exile is to live as a creative minority, a small group of people who adapt, innovate, stick together, and then bless the host culture at large. And if you know Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, like, think about it, like, that's what it's all about. Jesus says, be salt and be light in a world that needs renewal. What does that look like? It looks like loving your enemies. It looks like praying for those that persecute us. It it looks like giving the shirt off of our back. It looks like going the extra mile and letting our light shine before people that they may praise our Father in heaven. This is the vision of Jesus for his followers, to be a creative minority. And you guys, I believe God still sends prophets. I believe he sends prophets to us to name reality and to help us discern the way forward with Jesus. And these days, they're called pastors and professors and authors and teachers. And this language of being a creative minority now is like, it's picking up steam. It was originally made popular by a rabbi named Jonathan Sachs. And a Jewish person would know. They would know about life in exile. And here's what he wrote. He wrote, To become a creative minority is not easy because it involves maintaining strong links with the outside world while staying true to your faith, seeking not merely to keep the sacred flame burning, but also to transform the larger society of which you are a part. But numerous followers of Jesus, this became kind of popular, and they have adopted this language. I got it from a guy named John Mark Comer, but it's everywhere right now. Um, John Tyson from the, from the Church of the City, New York, describes a creative minority this way. This is what he says it looks like. He says, a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knotted together in a living network of persons in a complex and challenging cultural setting who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. Man, I'd like to be a part of that. So today is just like the introduction to this whole series, and next week we'll dive more fully into Daniel. Today, I just want the reality of our cultural moment to sink in. We need to face the reality that our culture has changed. And as followers of Jesus, we are on the outside now. And you guys, that's okay. So whether it's the barista or a coworker or your mom or dad or a guy at the end of the bar or your boss or the lady at soccer who asks, we need to settle into the reality that we are not normal and we're not cool. We're not. Christians spend so much energy trying to figure out how to be cool among the non-Christians in ways that the non-Christians can respect and understand. You guys, we're not cool. (laughs) We like to distinguish ourselves from all of those weird Christians that are out there. And okay, I get it. I get it because there are versions and expressions of Christianity that make me cringe. There's all kinds of junk out there that I don't want to be associated with. But let me tell you something. That doesn't make me normal to people in our culture. Okay, in our culture, I am not normal. 
then if you are an apprentice of Jesus, like a sincere apprentice of Jesus, you're not normal either. I mean, think about it, you guys. Think about it. We believe that a guy came back from the dead and that a whole new world, because of that, is now here and is coming more in full in the future. And we believe that this whole event and this whole thing that's happening has changed everything. That's not normal. And in many places, you guys, no matter what you do, it's not cool. So we have to own that. Like, I'm an apprentice of Jesus of Nazareth. And I believe that his teachings offer the best vision of the good life that there is. And I'm devoting my life to practicing the way of Jesus. And I'm not alone. I'm a part of a little community. And we do life together. And we are seeking the healing and the renewal of the world that we call home. We just need to own that. Now, you might not get invited to the party, right? You might not get the date. You might not get the promotion. You might not make the sale. And that's okay. It is a dinky price to pay for the joy of life with Jesus of Nazareth. And so in closing, I just want to say we must recognize that historically, Exile is where followers of Jesus have been at their best. When Christianity gets all mixed up with culture and it costs us nothing to follow Jesus and we can just blend in with everybody and kind of do whatever we want, that has not been good for the church. You guys, so many good things can come out of exile. For example, historically, exile has served to purify the church. Why? Because in exile, only the strong survive. Like the lazy, the uncommitted, the apathetic, the nominal, they tend to get weeded out pretty fast. They tend to bail. Because exile makes the church smaller, but it makes it stronger. I mean, you think about the last 10 years or so, don't raise your hand or anything, but how many of you have had friends in the category of, well, they're, they're kind of Christian, but they're not, and they go to church, but they're not really devoted, they're not like a devoted apprentice of Jesus who over the last five or 10 years has just fallen off the map spiritually. Why does that happen? Because that kind of faith, that kind of Christianity, those kinds of folks don't tend to make it through exile. When things get hard and there's a real cost and there's pressure pushing back, they're out. And this is what Jesus, Jesus was saying from the very beginning. Look, here's the deal. You're in or you're out. You're either a sheep or a goat in the language of Jesus. You're, you're for me or you're against me, he would say. You're following, you're a disciple, or you're in the crowd. And I know that this is like super unpopular to say. This is not like super uh, like inviting and warm. I get it. But you guys, it's, it's actually all over the teachings of Jesus. Exile produces purity and much deeper levels of community. Why? Because in exile, you guys, we have to stick together to make it through. We have to. Exile also leads to a tremendous amount of creativity. Because to make it through exile, you, you have to be innovative and you have to adapt. You can't do the things that you've always done. You have to, you have to be creative while also at the same time being, being true to your core. Like church has to change. How we do church has to change just to make it through. 
And as Trevor said, some of you walked in today and you saw the setup and you went, oh, thank God. <laughs> We're back to normal, right? I can worship and sing without anyone looking at me. I just want to say, I mean, come on. I know. Um, we've been a- adapting and innovating around here a lot. Um, Church has been a meal around a table a few times. You guys remember that? Or a worship circle. Um, We've had a few church services, you guys get this? Don't tell your friends, but with no sermon. (laughs) And you guys have embraced that stuff, and you've taken it to heart. And I I think we're going to need to do more of it. That's, that's reality. Now, we're not talking about changing our fundamental beliefs, our theology, but we have to innovate. Because for the church to be what Jesus designed it to be, we're going to have to modify some stuff. Um, th- this thing that we call church has morphed a ton since Jesus launched it 2,000 years ago. It has been through countless iterations, and many of, many of them have not been very helpful. Um, Richard Halverson is the former chaplain of the U.S. Senate. He once said, In the beginning, the church was a fellowship of men and women centering on the living Christ. Then the church moved to Greece, where it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome, where it became an institution. Next, it moved to Europe, where it became a culture. And finally, it moved to America, where it became an enterprise. Church cannot be, right? It cannot be just a service we attend or a philosophy we believe or an institution we belong to or a culture to spread to the U.S. As much as we're able, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we must become what Jesus dreams for us. I mean, as John Tyson says, what is a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knotted together in a challenging cultural setting who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. But to do that, we will need to adapt and we will need to innovate. We will need to do things that help us connect more deeply. Things that get us out of predictable patterns and comfort zones. And you know what, you guys? You guys have been so stinking willing to do that stuff. More than willing. Like, you guys have been eager. I was sharing what we did with the uh, brunch thing at a pastor's network that I'm at, and one of the pastors was like, I love that. I'm going to have my church do that. And so he, he brought it to his church, and he just about got strung up. I'm serious. The hostility was out of control, and they were not able to, to, instead of having a normal church service, have brunch together because people flipped the heck out. I love you guys. <laughs> and exile will force us to adapt and innovate. It is, it is a good thing. And my point in closing is that, I, is, is that what can emerge from exile is a tight-knit community practicing the way of Jesus together, set apart but not separated from the culture. A community marked by an innovative, creative, new approach to being human, to life and church and humanity that in turn spreads healing and renewal to our world. 
You guys, this, this moment that we're now entering into, I believe, can act as, can be, can be kind of a catalyst for, for a re- as like, like a renaissance for the church. And like many of you, I, I feel the tectonic cultural shifts. I, I feel the ground beneath my feet, and it's moved, and we, we're now in a whole new reality. And, and it was terrifying at first, and it was, then it was sad, and then it was discouraging. But to be honest, you guys, what's happening for me now is I'm looking at this thing, and I'm seeing a whole new world of possibility. And I can't wait to see what comes out of this next season of our life together. And to be honest, I feel God moving and stirring in us at Brookview in beautiful ways. Beautiful ways. And I can't wait to see what comes out of our time of exile. And so, hopefully you're up for that. Because it's a thing whether you're up for it or not. <laughs> and so hopefully this is something that we can, we can do and be in together. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father in heaven, I thank you that even in Babylon, you're present and you're good and you're working and you're calling us to be salt and light. And you're calling us to beauty that we can hardly imagine. But this is not something that we can go about like super casually. We're going to have to decide if we want the kingdom and we want the king or not. And so Jesus, as we, as we face this kind of new thing for many of us, I pray that you would, you would meet us in it, that you would help us to come together, to come together in, in a way that's deeper than anything before, to get creative, to get in, innovative, to be stubborn about, about the things we need to be stubborn about and to be completely not stubborn about the things we need to not be stubborn about. Would you move among us? Would you fill us with life and light and hope and help us together to influence the host culture that's all around us, filled with people that you love deeply. Our parents, our children, our siblings, our neighbors, our coworkers, people that you love. God, we're not cool and we're not normal, but we're engaged in the most beautiful thing happening on planet Earth. So let our light shine that people may see our deeds and praise you and praise you. Amen.